0: We'll take your Bible now. Uh, if you are looking in your bulletin, you'll notice our scripture reading. Uh, our scripture reading is uh, Hebrews eleven eight through 19, and that was last week. Uh, you already see the effects. Of uh, Brant not being here. He covered much of my mistakes. So he would catch those type things. So just get used to mistakes for the coming weeks. As it applies to some of those things. Uh, do turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, but we won't be in verses 8 through 19. Uh, we will read verses 32 through 35. And then we're going to turn over uh, to Judges chapter 6. Uh, page 1008 is where you will find Hebrews chapter 11 in your pew Bible. And then here in just a moment, we'll go over to Judges, and I'll give you the page there as well. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. And what more shall I say? For fa- time would fail to tell me, for me to tell, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms Now let's go over to Judges chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's, in page, it's on page 205. Page 205, you'll find Judges chapter 6. And we'll look at verses 1 through 10. This is the uh, setting of the scene, if you will, for our study in Judges 6 of the life of Gideon and the grace of God upon and in and through his life. Judges 6, 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts and number, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because the Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the count of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell." But you have not obeyed my voice. Join with me now as we pray. Father, we have opened the most powerful force in the entire universe the Word of God. We submit ourselves to your Word this morning. We plead for your help upon our time of study. And we thank you for not only this word, but the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand. That helps us to apply. That opens eyes that are dim to certain truths that we need to see more clearly. Father, we thank you for your grace. All that you have to work with is imperfect people. And yet what glory that you have gained through imperfect people. Not because of us, but because of you. Father, help us to understand more clearly this morning through the life of Gideon and in the book of Judges. Your grace that overcomes our failures. We need to understand this more and more clearly in our lives. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity that you provide us for us to us now to understand this. And we submit ourselves to you with great joy and delight and hope. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we continue our study that we've looked or entitled as Vignettes of Grace. Uh, If you were not with us three weeks ago when we began, we looked at the life of Abraham. Uh, Last week, we spent some time studying the life of Samson. Uh, We haven't really spent much time in Hebrews chapter 11, but we've used that as a springboard uh, by way of thinking, as is right in some sense of the word, that Hebrews chapter 11 is a hall of faith. And we've discussed, and we will say it yet again, it's really more a hall of God's grace and less of man's faith, and yet the grace that God provides for men, imperfect, to have faith. And so we've used the examples, or some of them, in Hebrews chapter 11, to uh, focus, if you will, the attention upon the grace of God uh, in these men's lives, in these people's lives, as well as then in application our lives as well. We find ourselves in Judges chapter 6 this morning. Uh, the book of Hebrews mentions four judges. Samson is the last of the 12 judges in Scripture. Uh, the judges are those who span the period of time between Joshua and Samuel, and we have twelve of them. Samson's the twelfth. We're looking at Gideon. He's in the first three, four, five, if you will. There's something you need to understand about the book of Judges, and that is it's cyclical. It revolves. It, it moves in a cycle. Uh, we we have seen a bit of this cycle already this morning. We began by reading Judges chapter six, one through ten. And that is the beginning of the cycle. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That is apostasy. That is they would fall away from what God had commanded them to do. They didn't do it once, uh, they didn't do it twice and they did it over and over and over again. And so there would be at the if you're graphing this out or if you're putting it in a word picture, you have at the top of the oval, you have apostasy. And then the next thing that takes place is servitude. That is God would give in judgment his people over to a neighboring enemy who would put them in subjection. This one is Midian. You see that? Verse 1, seven years, the people of Israel are under the servitude of Midian. God controls that by way of bringing them out of apostasy into servitude. The bottom, if you're still following the oval, is then supplication. The people would cry out to God, Help us! And God would hear and He would then provide, if you follow it on over, Or somewhere around the 9 o'clock range on the circle. Salvation. Apostasy. Servitude. Supplication. Salvation. He would bring a judge. Who would act upon behalf of the people. And using that man. Or even in the case. A woman. He would bring about. The salvation of his people. From the servitude. That he had placed them under in order to bring them out of their apostasy. And you would hope and you would think that once he had done that once we'd be free sailing, but no, it happens many, many, many times throughout the book of Judges. There's this sense that something else is needed. Uh that these judges that God is supplying and working through are are, are not enough. Because even all the work that God does in and through them doesn't bring about the eternal salvation that they so desperately need. I want to just note for you one bit of application, even before we touch upon the life of Gideon. And that is what we find over the entirety of the book of Judges, which is a 400 plus year span of time. That's to be noted because you and I don't operate on that calendar. Uh, We don't operate on that size of a week. Uh, We operate on a seven-day week. It seems to go by too fast for us, and yet not enough seems to happen within that period of time. We cry out to God if something doesn't happen as we would desire to in a four-day period of time and wonder why He hasn't done it four hours or four minutes or four milliseconds from when we first requested. God's calendar is greatly different. We might actually should say it is entirely different than ours. It's as if you and I were to, to get in some airplane and fly to the other side of the world. And then when we landed, we got off the plane and they said, welcome to some day we'd never heard of. Well, what what do, you, what do you mean? Well, yes, we operate on a 22-day calendar here our days are 36 hours long we have no capacity to function god's calendar is not our calendar god's calendar is entirely different this is if you will faith this is the the mark of many of these in hebrews 11 is believing by faith that god's invisible hand of future providence was going to work out maybe not 40 years from now. Maybe 400. Maybe 1,000. Maybe 2,000. That is faith. Trusting the word of God. That what God has stated will come to pass irregardless of whether or not we're seeing it happening now. Now we see judges. The people of the Israel have been under this hand of rule by a foreign land for seven years. They've cried out to God and for the first time, God does not send them a judge. He sends them a prophet. We don't know the name of this individual, but he comes and he prophesies and he declares that they have not obeyed the voice of God and trusted him, rather have given themselves in fear To the gods of the Amorites. He reminds them. Of the past promises. And the the past. Mercies and grace of God. To lead these people. That were once in captivity. For 400 plus years. In Egypt and now has brought them out. Of the house of slavery. And if he delivered them then. We're looking at verse 9 of Judges 6. Surely he's going to do it now. And then he brings on. Upon the scene. Gideon. Now Gideon's life is one that starts quite well. And as every other one that we've seen does not end so well. We have this man who is under captivity and therefore you see verse 11 what he's doing. That is, we've just seen the context, they would have crops that would come up and then these neighboring Countries would come in and wipe out the crops. So whatever way he was able to find himself some wheat, he's not on the threshing floor where the enemy might be able to take away his grain. He's doing it in secret. He's in the wine press and he's beating out this grain. And the angel of the Lord appears to him. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I just cannot help But see the irony upon the angel of the Lord telling this man as he's hiding from the enemy, O mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. There's this conversation that takes place. There's this promise that they will be delivered. Verse Thirteen, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. That is not a sign of weakness. That's actually a sign of truth. The man is saying what is clear. God, is I, you've chosen me. I'm not all that that you've told me that I'm just in. you instead said, said I'm a man, mighty man of valor. I'm a weak man and I know this. How are you going to do this? And there is the truth of how God takes weak people and uses them for his glory. It's not our strength, but I will be with you. Verse 16. So there's this offering that has is given to the Lord. There's this touch of a rock. There's this fire that springs from the rock, consuming the meat and the unliving cakes. And Gideon is trusting the Lord. Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, verse 22, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And he calls him to do this thing. And that is he's going to begin his process of redeeming his people by starting where all repentance should start, which is the tearing down of idols. He wants him to tear down the idols of his father's house. Pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. God is calling him to the work. And at this moment, you've got to be thinking, Gideon, this, this is your time. God is speaking to you. He's shown you what he can do with right worship he's shown you his ability to consume and delight in this offering that you place for him he's calling you to to make it nationally known that the god who has saved us from egypt is the one who will save us again let us offer to him now our worship let us tear down our altars you would think gideon now called by god mighty man of value marches out does this no Gideon takes ten men and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family, the men of the town, to do it by day, he did it by night. God overcomes even our frailty. He overcomes the frailty and fear in the face of the glory of his God that has been displayed to him. He overcomes that. Verse 28, you see the results of what happens to this tearing down of the wood of Ashereth. And you see what takes place. There's a price that is placed upon Gideon's head. Joash, his father, who had erected this altar, stands and pleads for his life. He's got this name that is put upon him. He's now called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. That's the logic by which his father used. If Baal is God, he'll defend himself. If God is God, then he is right in what he has done. Look at verse 34 of chapter 6. The Spirit of the Lord, even in the midst of the failures of Gideon, already to this point, clothes Gideon, he sounds the trumpet, and all of these people come out. To follow him. Things look pretty good again, and yet doubt again. Verse 36 is the story you probably well know of the fleece. Now there is this fleshing, threshing floor that he's upon. He takes this fleece, he takes a piece of, of sheepskin, if you will, and he tests God. I'm going to put this fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece and everything else is dry, then you're God. I'll do it. What does God do? Has mercy upon him and he does it. Next morning, not enough. Gideon wants the opposite sign. Maybe there's an accident. Maybe somehow there's water on this and nothing on else. I don't know what he's thinking, but he is certainly not speaking or thinking in faith. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and there was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Then you have in verse 7 what could be described as Gideon's first battle. Gideon has two battles. The second one uh, doesn't go quite as well as the first. The first is ordained and blessed by God. And it goes well. I I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this, but you can read it this afternoon. He amasses a very large army. And God says, there's too many. And there's a process by which God takes Gideon and cutting down this army to a very few, all of 300 people. And these 300 go up against, you'll see it in verse 12 of chapter 7. a a, a valley, a place of people that has so many in it. it, It's called the valley-like locusts in abundance. And you, if you know the story, or if you don't, God works on behalf and in and through Gideon for his people, and he brings them victory that is really unable to be explained. 300... Cannot defeat potentially hundreds of thousands. No way about it unless God is doing a work of grace in and through the week. Gideon, I've already noticed, has expressed some doubt, not faith. You'll see that he has doubted God in verse 27 of chapter 6. He pulled down the idols at night due to fear. You'll see that he he has doubted the word of God in chapter 6 verse 34. Though he has been clothed with the spirit of the Lord. As you'll see in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. God, you've told me from your, you've given me your word. You're going to save these people. And then there's this doubt and testing. Chapter 8, verse 22, following the second battle. We see the idolatrous leadership of Gideon. They want to put him, the people of Israel, in verse 22, want to put him and place him as their head. They want him to rule over them. And Gideon says, nope, I'm not going to do that. The Lord is going to rule over you. And he makes a very poor choice I'm not going to rule over you, but why don't you take all of the spoils of war that you've gotten, all these earrings, give them to me. This has got to sound just like Aaron with the golden calf. And he does. And he he takes this massive amount of gold and he makes this ephod. And notice the results. Verse 27, all Israel hoard after there. They had an adulterous desire for it. They were idolatrous in their pursuit of this. They worshipped it. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He took the blessings of war and he made them an idol. Brothers and sisters, is that not what we do every day with the generous blessings provided to us by God? We, we, we take the blessings of a spouse and we make that spouse an idol. We place, the, we take the blessings of children and we make our children an idol. We take our job, we make it an idol. We take our financial blessings, we make them an idol. You're Christian people. We can do the math. That is, we can, we can examine by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, what has God provided in your life that you have allowed to become an idol? And the warning is clear for us in chapter 8, verse 27. It became a snare. It will become that which is a snare. It it, it grabs us. It holds us. It restricts us from the joy that we long for it to give us that only God can provide. And it is on that note then, brothers and sisters, that we've got to turn in this passage that seems to end poorly and ask ourselves, where is God's grace? And it is overly abundant. I want to mention a few or point you to a few particular places. You can look for others as well. But chapter 6, verse 36, you see evidence of God's grace. God was very patient with fearful persistence. Or you could put it another way. God was very patient with persistent fearfulness. Gideon wanting Fearfully to have multiple assurances over and above what God had already clearly done in many ways, that he would do what he said he's going to do, and God is graciously patient with this man. He's the same with us. Chapter 7, verse 10. God is gracious to provide another word. Uh, Not a different word, but another word. Chapter 7, verse 10. But, God sang to Gideon, But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And the situation was, 300 men, verse Maybe multiple hundred thousands. God knows the tendencies of failure and weakness in the life of Gideon. He knows that he has provided to him all that he needs to be able to do this work. And he provides for him another word, another means of encouragement. It's almost as if God has gotten to the point of going, I know where Gideon's going with this because God that has done this. And I'm going to go ahead and just jump ahead of Gideon here. Gideon, you're going to be fearful yet again. Why don't you just go ahead and go on down to the camp? There's a word down there. You're gonna be reminded of something. You know, there's this is the first time in the story that Gideon hasn't sought God and God's reply. Now, God is moving first, graciously providing another word. He has provided for us his word. If you run out of of words in Scripture, come talk to me. I I don't think you're looking at them clear enough. He's provided you innumerable and eternal amounts of word and scripture. That is all you need to trust him in the midst of our failures. Over and over and over again. If not by direct word, by example. Why do you think we have the book of Judges? Here's another instance of his grace. Chapter 7 verse 24 and 25. You might note the heading, it says, Gideon defeats Midian. Really? No, God, through Gideon, defeats Midian. God uses Gideon despite his failures, overcomes them, and actually does this miraculous work of freeing his people. Grace that overcomes. Grace that overcomes our failures. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life, the Christian lives in faith that God gives wonderfully undeserved blessings upon the lives of broken, messed up people who deserve none of those blessings. That's the life of the Christian. Every day you wake up. Believing in faith that God gives wonderfully undeserved blessings upon the lives of broken, messed up people who deserve none of those blessings. Uh, That is our hope. Every day, waking up, knowing, yes, I failed again yesterday. Yes, I failed already this morning. I haven't even put my feet on the floor. And I'm thinking wrongly about this day. And it is in that moment where the Christian in faith says, but God is gracious and merciful to me this day. How is your faith in the area of your mistakes? Can you, do you see the grace of God upon your life? Do you have the faith to see forward to the day where you will experience the blessings of God, the outpouring of his grace, despite your failings? I, I think there's a point here that we have to be a bit honest with ourselves. We we looked at Samson last week, looking at the grace of God in the lives of Samson. And and if anyone uh, has ears to hear and eyes to see, which if you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got that, then every one of us can see a Samson in our lives. Uh, Let me me put it another way, maybe a more clear way. Every one of us can see the, the failings of sexual sin in our lives. We're sexual sinners, every one of us. Our sexual sins, of which we all are, but but particularly our failings in this area, it's one of, if not the greatest areas of sin, where we recognize our failings most sharply. It stings. And so can I ask you this morning, let me encourage you this morning, that whether it's that type of sin, or the sin of fear with Gideon, or whatever it might be for your life, Let me encourage you this morning, find another man, find another woman. Ask them to help you with walking out repentance from whatever particular sin you are struggling with. And also, hear me clearly, ask them to pray and help you have the faith to believe that God delights to pour out grace and blessings on people who fail. That there's a new tomorrow. That He still will use you. Delights to do so. It is very true. There is no one righteous, no one, not one. And even as we sit here this morning, we see his grace, if in no other area, than that we're not failing at the rate that we could be failing. It's not a popular thing to talk about failure and we're failures. But scripture speaks even more starkly upon the matter. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, I like the King James better in this, in this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There's a Hitler in every one of us. There's a Margaret Sanger in every one of us. And yet, but God, being rich in Mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. You know that passage. That is as true for us today as it will be tomorrow. R- really, what you have in Judges chapter 6 is the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the sense that you have God's people failing, and yet God's covenant mercies, unfailing love to them, that never, ever moves. And God's gracious response to His people, when His people, in their failings, cry out to Him. Brothers and sisters, if you're in sin this morning, Then cry out to him. He delights to hear the prayers of his people who cry out to him for help. He does it over and over and over again. You don't have a quota of the amount of times you can do that. If you're here this morning and you do not know God and you wonder now, what? well, what do I do? I don't know God. I I can't cry out to him. Well, he actually calls people everywhere to repent. He calls people that don't know him to cry out to him for salvation from their sins. And he's loving and he's forgiving and he's gracious and he saves sinners. Just like me. Just like you. This grace of God that overcomes is that which in faith the Christian grabs hold of and is then able to recognize and be ashamed and be mournful over his or her sin and yet smile and be genuinely happy and enjoying the wonderful blessings of God upon their life. I I, uh, I, I couldn't think of a very good illustration this morning, so bear with me on this one. This is the best I could come up with. And, and that is through the, through the illustration of a man, John Surson. If you're like me, you never heard of him until this morning. He's, he's a bit old. 1744 is when he perished. He was an English boat captain who invented what was at that called, time called a whirling speculum. It was a, a crudely crafted device of a mirror on top of a top. And he on a boat would spin the top and the mirror would stay steady. And you can start to see where this would go a hundred plus years later. And sure enough, it did. It was refined, developed, and it's now what we know as the gyroscope. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God, the truth of God and His grace is that gyroscope, to the hearts of desperately wicked sinners. It overcomes by faith the pressure we feel at times to spin out of control when we've sang it this morning. When we're tempted to despair and the enemy tells me of the guilt within, then upward I look. And I see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless savior died. My guilty soul is counted free for God. The just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is the gyroscope of grace that in the midst of all of this, there's a steady level line that never moves. And that is the grace of God. So one more illustration from a man and then we close. You know him. His name is John Newton. He writes Amazing Grace. And you know of his life. Or if you don't, let me remind you, he's a young sea captain. He is seeking, if you will, to define what desperately wicked, according to Jeremiah 17:9, can actually look like. And he gets quite close. He is so wicked that not only do does everybody hate him, that he enslaves upon his ship, all those who work on his ship for him hate him. Uh, they have a bit of mercy, and their mercy is when he falls overboard to stab him with a harpoon and drag him back onto board. You're not a well-liked man at that moment. He was a wicked, wicked man. And yet... The graciousness of God saving him in the midst of a death, an experience of near death. God gets his attention. He looks to Christ and he is saved. He is transformed. And he goes from one who hates God to one who writes about his amazing grace. He says this, four things that God has taught me in the Bible. Number one, I must realize that in my present condition, I am a sinner before God. Number two, I cannot save myself from eternal punishment in hell. Number three, Christ has paid for my sins and my punishment with his death on the cross. And number four, I must accept his crucifixion as payment for my sins personally. Romans ten thirteen: for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, I find it interesting We think of amazing grace, how sweet the sound, but we rarely go to verse two and really think strongly upon it. So let me read it for you. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Grace that taught my heart to fear and grace that relieved my fears. Same grace, different fears. The grace of God in our lives is that which helps us to fear God. It's not a permission to use that grace for sin. We don't understand it at that moment. But it calls us, it helps us to look to Him. It gives us actually a great hatred for our sin. And yet it also relieves our fears, our sinful ones, ones that we might have about tomorrow, but also ones that we might have about our current sin now and what it looks like before the throne of God. His grace through Christ relieves those fears that we are in and through him for all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you the life of Gideon. I would encourage you to read it in its entirety But I hope and trust that you see very clearly another aspect of the grace of God and that is it overcomes our failings. It has overcome his and it overcomes yours and it will overcome ours tomorrow. He is loving and kind toward us. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to your word and we plead for you even now. To time stamp the truth of your overcoming grace upon our hearts and minds. We would plead, Father, that you would help us in the midst of our fears over our life, in the midst of our fears over our sin, to be reminded of your kindness toward us. Father, we thank you that as we look to Christ and we look to the grace available for us in and through Christ, where we see all of our sin covered, we thank you that that grace not only relieves our fears, but provides for us an overcoming fear, one that supersedes all other sinful fears, one that is the foundation and Nourishment for a wonderful love relationship with you. One that provides us the means of grace necessary to fight our sin, as you've called us to do. Father, we ask that you would help us this week in the battle of sin. Help us as we fight against it. Help us to think rightly when we Fail in it. Help us to think rightly when by your grace we resist it. Father, you are gracious enough to us that even in every temptation and sin you provide a way of escape. Give us bigger eyeballs to see those ways of escape and give us greater faith to jump upon them. To believe that there is more pleasure and more delight and more joy in the way of escape than in the pleasures of sin for a season. Father, you've called uh, your people, your church to arise. We will sing that now. We put upon, we recognize the armor that has been placed upon us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and as we go forward this week to in in war in battle against our sin we recognize we do not fight fight against flesh and blood we thank you that you've defeated satan and death and we look long and plead for the return of Jesus Christ in the precious and holy name of Jesus we pray amen